I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Today's guest was once asked before taking a new position in government, were you ever in the military? And if you were, did you volunteer for a suicide mission? Yep, that was asked. In the second half of the 1990s, Congress and the public had had it with the IRS, both questioned whether real change could ever happen. The Treasury Secretary at the time had the understanding to know that the IRS issues were a management problem, so he started looking for people in the private sector to run it. And he ultimately found Charles Rosati, who accepted the mission over five years starting in 1997. He tells about his experience in his book, Many Unhappy Returns, which is, in my opinion, one of the best management books ever written by a successful CEO. And in the opening minutes of this discussion, you're going to say, Charles Rosati, that guy is a leader, and he is. I'm Mark Gandy, and this is CFO Bookshelf. Charles Rosati was a co-founder, former chairman, and CEO of American Management Systems, Inc. So the first question I had to ask Charles, were you insane when you decided to accept the IRS commissioner position? Most of my family and most of my friends thought I was. <laughs> and I actually didn't accept right away. I, you know, it was you know, really a cold call, so to speak. I mean, I had no idea I was going to be in the government. And so I was happily working in business. Um, and happily, though, I was at a stage where I had pulled back directly from a CEO role into a chairman role because I wanted to ease off. And I thought I was going to spend more time, you know, uh, offline and all. So I got this, I got this uh, inquiry through a, a, their contact would I would would I would be willing to go talk to the Treasury Secretary? That was Robert Rubin at the time. And you know what it turns out is that there were a lot of um, a lot of issues at the IRS at that point, which were detailed in the first chapter of the book. And he was having a lot of trouble getting dealing with that. So he decided that he wanted to recruit quote a businessman to to be the head of the IRS because all previous commissioners had been tax experts. So you know. The the truth of the matter is he called everybody in his Rolodex and nobody, you know, nobody was willing to do it. And so finally somebody introduced him to me and I just kind of thought, well, you know, I really wasn't ready to leave the business, but I would find out about it. And so I went over to him and I thought it was interesting. And, you know, one thing led to another. And then over about a four or five month period, I finally got my, my, uh, you know, my uh, arms around it, if you want to call it that, my mind around it, really, okay, I'll, I'll do this. Um, so I, I, I jumped in and I did it. The first person to lead the IRS in, I believe, 50 years who was a yeah. business person. And so right. was that the calling at the time? Was was the objective we've got to bring in a business person or, or was that just yeah. someone had thought about that as an idea? No, that that, that was that was, that was Bob Rubin. That he, was the, he said, look, we've got the problems we're having here are really management. And, you know, he was obviously a businessman, even CEO of Goldman Sachs. They had a lot of technology issues. So they, they actually thought it was mostly technology. It turned out it wasn't. It was technology, but not most. Seldom is technology a problem by itself, as you probably know from your other readings. I mean, there's always other things. But still, that was his, that was his you know, kind of thought. But, but mainly it was, look, we, we've got to really deal with the management problems here. So he wanted to find somebody from management you know, that had experience. And that was, that was why he was looking for that kind of a person. 
Before we jump into the book, again, it's many unhappy returns. And Charles, one thing I want to bring up is I think it's in chapter one where you're talking about your history. You were one of the first four employees of the Boston Consulting Group. I think Bruce Henderson actually hired you. That is amazing. And, and you look at how big they are today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've got Accenture, you got, you've got yeah. McKinsey, uh, right. you've, you've got Bain, but the fact that you're one of the first employees yeah. of BCG, that that's incredible. Now that was a, uh, you know, of course I had no idea what it was. It was just Henderson and a couple of other people. Yes. I was one of the first, I was the first, you know, MBA right out of school. He had, you know, a couple of more senior people that he had taken with him somewhere. And he was starting to recruit up, you know, I mean, really they had practically no clients. I mean, I think they had one client and, uh, but he, he had me and I, you know, as I was, I was a pretty young guy when I got a business. I was only 23 when I got out of Harvard business school. Um, I didn't really know what I, I knew someday I wanted to start a business, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I was just talking to some people and Henderson, you know, I, I agreed to talk to him and he was a hell of a good uh, spinner, you know, I mean, he could spin what he was going to do, you know, to create this, strategy consulting firm and of course he did <laughs> but i thought oh, you know it's right here in boston i don't have to move you know i can just go there and you know see what happens let's set the stage you became the commissioner in the late 1990s during the clinton uh, administration and you were dealing with the political football both sides of the aisle were picking on the irs i think there's also a time period where we saw some bullying if that's the proper term uh, of some of the agents uh, being a little bit too forceful and trying to get money from. Yeah. So yeah. Set the stage yeah. for us. So, yeah. So what had happened is that, um, you know, the IRS had gone through periods in its history of calm and then storm, calm and then storm, calm for a long time. And then storm, you can go back, you know, for many, many years. So there've been calm almost all through the eighties, the early nineties, and then the storm broke, you know, and it sort of built up. And there were many things that caused it. And as I mentioned, technology failure was one of them. The IRS had, you know, made some technology investments that didn't play out. And they had, you know, almost some failures in the filing season. And then there was a lot of complaints about services people couldn't get through, which, by the way, continues to recur from time to time. Uh, and then there was also uh, there had been a period where, uh, for a variety of reasons, the uh, really caused originally by uh, the White House and Treasury. They wanted more money. And so they started to put pressure on the IRS, you know, go out and collect money. And that translated down to some, you know, to some heavy handed tactics in some cases, which caused a backlash, you know, lack of service, heavy handed tactics in some cases, not all cases, uh, and technology failures. And it get these all confusing. It looks like, wow, this is an agency that's out of control. So it culminated in some very, very uh, emotional and incendiary hearings in the Senate Finance Committee in September of 1997, three full days. And they were actually televised on CNN and other things like that, where you had taxpayers telling horrible stories about how they were mistreated. You had employees. So believe it or not, and I have a picture in the book that you could see where they actually on one day had three IRS employees testify with hoods, you know, like the old days when they had the mafia testify because they said these employees would be fired or, or you know, disciplined or whatever if they, if they if they came and testified, which, you know, was a very uh, dramatic scene. You know, I'm not sure they really had to do that, but it made for, for a heck of a story. 
So that was in September. I had been, you know, this had been building up, as I said, the storm. I was actually nominated in, I think it was June of that year. And then a couple months later, they had these hearings. And then my hearing was a month later, you know, right after this incendiary hearing. So um, at my, by the time I got there, they weren't sure anybody wanted the job. And in fact, one of the senators, in fact, the last question I got at my hearing, uh, this was, I'll never forget this. It was Senator Graham from Texas at that time. There's a different Graham than now we have a different Graham. And he said, you know, Mr. Chairman is, I can't do an accent, but he said, Mr. Chairman, you know, he says, I think at this point, anybody wants this job, we ought to just give it to him. And if I'm not mistaken, Senator Kerry said, you may want a dog. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, Unconditional love. Oh, by the way, and I forgot about this. I don't know why I did, but don't forget Y2K. Now, the technology was kind of built on a house of cards. You talk about that in the book, but... But oh yeah. yeah, Y2K was another big issue yeah, that you that's walked true. into. That was that was that was looming at the same time because this was 1997, at the end of 97, beginning of 98. We were only two years away, and people really had just started to realize that this could be a real catastrophe. So that was another issue that had to be dealt with. You know, totally apart from the other the other concerns. One of my favorite books, Charles, is American Icon, and it's the story of Alan Mulally turning around Ford, not once, but twice. And I still think, and again, this is my opinion, feel free to push back, sir. I think this may be one of the biggest and most incredible, massive turnarounds, business or non or nonprofit (laughs) ever, ever, ever. Am I right or wrong? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that's for you to judge or other people to judge. I don't know. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, difficult turnarounds. I mean, what's different about the government and and business? I mean, and there's many things about an agent. The IRS is an operational agency like a business. It's not, you know, we don't just give out you know, grants or anything like that. I mean, it's, you know, it's serious business collecting money, servicing people, but it is a government agency. And that puts a different light on it because there's you know, there's politics and business too, right? I mean, uh, you know, as you know, you've got a lot of constituencies in a public company. I ran a public company for, you know, 17 years, but, um, but they're not as intense. The politics is not as great. And the other thing is you have more objective measures in a business. I mean, ultimately, you know, you do have an objective measure of success in the sense of the market and the, and the profitability, Whereas in the case of the IRS, now, of course, the IRS has metrics, too, I don't know, in terms of money collected and how much, but it's not as, you know, not as clear cut. So you have, on the one hand, a more political environment, and on the other hand, a little bit mushier way of judging success and failure um, than you do in a business. So how do you judge whether it's, you know, a turnaround or a turnaround? But it was a big cultural turnaround. The big ideas I got from this book that I have three that I've outlined. And number one is you simplified. I was actually worn out getting into chapter three, chapter four, because I'm thinking, (laughs) I don't know, I don't know the end of the story yet. And I'm thinking, how's he going to do this? And so my first thought was you started simplifying, you got things, you took this massive organization and you put it down onto one sheet of paper or, or a napkin. I mean, again, you simplified uh, you came up with three goals and you came up with, I thought, what I've identified, five levers, a change. Right. Can you right. just kind of walk me through your thought process? I mean, were you thinking I've got to make the complex more simple or did it take a while for that to come to you? We'll be right back. 
Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host Matt Heslin brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Well, I mean, that really comes from my business background, because I think that if you've been successful in business, you know that you have to you have to crystallize things in a way that people can understand. And you've got 100,000 people, but it isn't only internally. You have externally. I mean, the IRS has many, many stakeholders. As we say, the IRS deals with every, essentially every individual, I mean, at least every taxpaying individual and every business in America and even nonprofits. And so, you know, it really has a lot of constituencies. Um, and you have to communicate with the external world as well as, and then of course you have Congress you know, we had six different committees in Congress and then you had the administration. So you have to have you have to have something that everybody in that can understand, but not at such a generic level that it's mush, you know, so it had to be clear enough. And so we had to we had to make it clear, for example, that, you know, service to taxpayers, that the taxpayers wasn't only collecting on deadbeats. You know what I mean? Most of the people are sending in the money, honestly, and they're the ones that are really the, the important as well or extremely important. So you have to elevate that dimension of the culture as well as the, let's call it the enforcement uh, element. And, you know, balancing those two is, is, you know, an important thing. And then, you know, as far as the levers of change and the things, I mean, there were so many period things that had people had complained about over a period of the previous five years about the IRS and, you know, just uh, dozens of, of complaints about this and that and the other thing. And then there, people had come up with a solution for each complaint. You know, how do we solve this problem? How do we solve that problem? So we had a hundred, you know, not a hundred. I think it, I think I had somebody do a little, we had 1500 action items, you know, people were supposed to implement. I said, no way. We're not going to solve this problem with 1500 separate items. Right. I mean, that's just not going to happen. So we have to really think through what's the root cause. What do we do about it? And then we can prioritize. I mean, those are, pretty straightforward business principles, right? It's just a matter of how you, how you apply them, you know, in a situation like the IRS. And uh, that part of it, I have to honestly say worked well, because, you know, those things pretty much held up for, you know, for the whole period I was there. I was impressed with the story of the new mission statement. I mean, you come from private industry where mission statements are important, and this is a mission statement. By the way, I, when I got done reading the book, I looked it up. They still have the same mission statement that you guys created. Pretty close. Created. Pretty close. Can yeah. you walk me through the way you came up with that? It was not something that was unilaterally done. By no. I thought the way you came up with that approach was just brilliant. Yeah. Well, thanks. I mean, you know, I knew we had to clarify the mission statement. And we had to get into it a balanced element between the fact that there's a lot of taxpayers out there that are honestly paying their tax and there's some that aren't and we had to get, so we had to get those elements into it. And the other thing I knew was that we didn't have two years to figure out how we were going to do a mission statement. Uh, We had to get something out that we could use to guide people and to to crystallize our 
our our mission. Uh, but I but I also knew that if I just sat down in my office and wrote three sentences and said, this is our mission statement, you know, it really wouldn't catch on. So I had to balance those. And so I got one person who had been to the IRS for a very long time, uh, who I knew was a pretty good writer, but she was, a very, you know, just, you know, one of those people that you could trust. And, and she knew the culture that was there before. And, you know, I put her in charge and I said, look, survey, you know, do a quick thing. We're only going to give you, you know, like two weeks or three weeks, whatever it is, you know, make sure it includes these elements and come up with, you know, some proposals. And then we'll sit down with a team and we'll sift through them. Then we'll come to a conclusion and then we'll roll it out. And that's what we did. There is a wonderful, in fact, it's a beautiful feel good story about this. There, And I'm going to have you fill in the blanks, but there's an individual who thought, why can't we put pictures of missing children on the backs of these packets (laughs) that go out? Well, the old missions, that's not our mission. Under the new mission, well, this will work. Can you kind of pick it up from there? This is a great story. Yeah, yeah. So there there was an organization called, um, I I forgot what it's called, that attract missing children. And they, they were the ones that came up with the idea of putting pictures like on cereal boxes and stuff like that. And the guy who, uh, who, who, who ran this organization had been trying for a long time, you know, to come to the IRS and get them to put it, put these things in certain IRS documents and stuff and got nowhere, you know, and, and, you know, somebody, you know, I don't know who told me about this guy or brought him in to see me. And he tells me this story. He said, look, we've got these kids, you know, it really works. We put them on cereal boxes what's wrong? Why can't we put them on some of these IRS things? And he said, you know, I've been trying, but the lawyers say we can't do it because it's not in the tax code or we can't do it because it's not in our mission statement. So I said, I don't think that those are any good reasons or not. So, you know, I, I, I asked the lawyer, you know, fortunately I had a good general counsel, a guy who was a pretty good guy. You know, I said to, to him, I said, Stuart, you know, is there any real reason why we can't do this? And you know, he looked it up a little. He says, no, not really. Says, you know, if you want to do it, you can do it. It'd be unconventional, but you do it. So, okay, we'll do it. And so I told the guy and he was, he was delighted. And then he, you know, we had some ceremonies and things like that where, where he, you know, brought in some examples of, of how, uh, you know, these kinds of action had and not necessarily that our specific pictures did, but, but that they had brought in things. And, and it was just an indication of thinking about, I used to say, and this wasn't directly in our mission statement, but I used to say, look, this organization is, is yes, it's about taxes. That's the end result. We've got to collect taxes, but it's really about the people who pay the tax. The people who pay the tax are the ones who pay the tax. And that's who we have to think about, you know, not just how many taxes it's not, it's just numbers. It's about people. And that was an example. I mean, it didn't directly connect to taxes, but it get to the idea that, look, we do care about the people out there. And I should not be surprised at all but you brought a balanced scored mindset to the IRS. I mean, you were not just looking at, you even stated in one of the, I, I have it marked here, but we'll have this in the show notes, but you state that there's no one number that can yeah. determine that, hey, we're succeeding. We needed several numbers to help us to determine, are we meeting our objectives? So again, I was impressed that, again, you you brought this this balanced scorecard uh construct uh, to the IRS. And, you know, that's another thing that came from business because that was the idea, even in business, that you can't measure everything just by 
quarterly profits, right? You got to look at what it's doing to the customers and, and the employees. And um, the same analogy applied at the IRS, you know, is just about how much enforcement revenue bring in, which is a crazy thing anyway, because enforcement revenue is only 2% and voluntary revenue is 98. So you're only working on the 2%. doesn't make any sense. Um, but yeah, well, that's the easiest thing to measure, just like in, in, in business. So that was another thing to, to go with the mission statement. You have to have metrics that track to that, because if you have a mission statement that says we want to do this and you have numbers that say, we're, you know, that's the only thing we care about, you're not going to get the right result. And that's something that everyone understands. And, you know, me- measurements are very important in government, just like they are in business. People do respond to what they're measured by. I mean, that's that's very powerful. And then speaking of measurements, there's one area I I think you deserve any medal that that can be given to you because sure you can start inst- you can start creating some change, uh, you know, changing objectives. Uh, here's the path we're going down. But at the end of the day, you still have to have a staff that's engaged, uh, that cares, uh, the attitudes there. The training, which you do address in the book, I would think that that had to be one of the hardest aspects. I know technology was complicated, but turning around that culture had to be impossible. Well, no. Well, you know, impossible. It's it's, it's always a chance. Turning around anything is is difficult, you know, if, if it's deeply embedded. And, you know, you look at the situation that the IRS was in is this, there are many, many people that have worked there for, for their whole lives or for many, many years that actually, you know, believe it or not, really believed in the mission. They, they thought they were doing good work. I mean, they weren't just there to get a job. They really did. And some of it's very hard work. You know, by the way, talking to people about taxes on the phone or collecting their money, that's not such an easy job every day to go in, Right. And then all of a sudden, they're the subject of, you know, huge criticism, you know, on TV for people testifying behind hoods that the IRS people are abusing taxpayers. They're being criticized on the front page of the Newsweek magazine and the Washington Post. And there are people were saying, look, I'm afraid to tell anybody I even work for the IRS. Um, So the morale, you know, gets to be very, very low. And then what you're trying to do is to tell them we're going to change a little bit or maybe a significant amount what the mission is. So the key to that is to acknowledge what's good and acknowledge what needs to be changed. This is what we're doing. That's right. It's not we wouldn't be here if if we were doing everything wrong. You know, we'd be gone. We would disband it if they didn't need us. So there's a lot that people are doing. But. There's some things that we can do better and we need to do better. It's not all employed for the employees. Some of it is lack of technology, lack of resources, but whatever it is, it doesn't matter. This is where we are. Here's where we need to go. And then try to convince people that's a bright future. You know, yeah, it's a tough spot, but we're going to get to the other side of it and there'll be a bright future. And that's kind of the way that you do it. And it takes years. I mean, you know, it isn't instantaneous, Um, but that's, that's again, the same thing in any turnaround in any, in all those other books you read. If you turn arounds, they have those same elements because they have to they have to win the confidence of people at the same time they're going through a crisis or at least not a crisis, at least a, a difficult patch. One of my curiosity questions, Charles, as I was reading through some of the, the key people that you brought into the organization, some of them may have stayed. Some of them may have went on to do different things. Yeah. Uh, were you able to keep up with some of the people who who went on to maybe become CEOs themselves or leaders in other organizations? Um, 
I have kept up with some. I mean, um, many of them of the, that I brought in were, um, you know, from the private sector, honestly, were people that were sort of at the at the back end of their career because they'd already had. I mean, otherwise they might not have been able to do it or afford it. Right. So, you know, and I've had, you know, and so th- those were those were some great people. Uh, some of the internal people have gone on to, you know, other major firms, you know, in places, uh, you know, that uh, are, deal with technology and things like that. So yes, I've kept kept up with some of them. I mean, and they were they were a great team at the time, um, but uh, they were a mixed team. I mean, there were some people that had been there as career people for for a long time, and there were some people that came in from the private sector to be there for three to five years and help turn it around. A couple of few more questions as we wrap up. Uh, I don't know if this is an unfair question, but what does the IRS? What attention do they need? Uh, today, how, how are how are they doing? And I know you're you. This will be positive, yeah. but uh, yeah. th- thoughts about what's yeah. going well, on? Well, yeah. Well, I have been. I didn't do anything after I left for about fifteen or so years on IRS or taxes, but in the last couple of years, I did start to write, and I've been you know active in some testimony and things like that because. As I said, the IRS has been for a long time. They go through periods. They really, they really went through a, a down period, not because of what they did internally. In fact, they've done some marvelous things to this COVID. If you've seen, they've done some marvelous yes. things, but they're really so under underfunded and so understaffed that they can't really carry out the full mission. And that part of that is reflective in service levels that have gone down. You know, and obviously made worse by the COVID. But it's also been true that the uh, the so-called tax gap, the amount of uncollected taxes has really grown to, you know, an, a, literally an outrageous amount. It's not the fault of the IRS. You know, they haven't had the resources. And also there's other forms of income that didn't exist years ago or were much smaller that are not properly uh, identified. So um, um, the, you know, the, the thing that is needed now is to revitalize. They need some long-term funding to restaff and to improve the technology. Those are the two things they need. Can you tell us a little bit more about shrinking the tax gap? I mean, that that is yeah. new. Uh, just yeah. we'll have this in the show notes. We'll have links, but just what's what's yeah. the the mission there? Basically, the point is that the amount of tax that is due but not collected has grown to a number that's so big it's hard to describe. I mean, in fi- 2019, it was 580 billion dollars. To explain how big that is, that is more than all the taxes paid by 90% of individual taxes. You take all the taxpayers in the rank of tax, the lower 90% pay in a certain amount. It's 135 million taxpayers. That huge amount that's paid by not paid is, is equal to all that. And it's growing all, every year. And, you know, in the meantime, we have a huge deficit in the country. People are talking about raising taxes. If you raise taxes, who's going to pay them? The people that are already paying are going right. to pay more. The people that are not paying are still not going to be paying. So, the thing that is shrink the tax gap, which is the, the brand name or the monitor that we've given is several of my colleagues have come up with some practical proposals to do some things that would shrink that, you know, to bring in some of the money. And we think you could bring in a lot of money, like a trillion and a half dollars over 10 years by doing that without paying, without any taxpayer paying a dime more than they're already paying, if they're, assuming they're paying what they owe. Uh, this is CFO Bookshelf. And so we ask every guest, sorry. We like to know what kinds of books you like to read. What are some of the, your favorites or books that you've gifted? Uh, it can even be recent books. 
I, I like mostly nonfiction books. Uh, my wife and I both are big readers, but she, we do read fiction, but I, you know, I like the nonfiction books. Um, I like this, the latest book I just read, which I highly recommend to all your readers is by Brian Stevenson, uh, just mercy. Uh, you know, I don't know whether you've seen that book, but that is a sensationally great book. And, uh, uh, even though I've been very busy lately, I I just couldn't put that thing down. And he's, uh, was a volunteer lawyer, but he dealt with many cases of the death penalty, you know, and not being justly applied and, you know, what he was able to do with that. But you can't put that book down. Well, Charles, thank you very much. This book is incredible. Many and happy returns. Every, I think every business student, this should be required business reading. I I think any CEO uh, should read it. I think the audience is large, even those in financial leadership. Uh, I, this book needs to be, uh, it needs to be out on the forefront. Well, thank you very much. And uh, it was a great interview. And I'm so glad that you happened to find my, my book from 15 years later. But uh, very much enjoyed the interview. And thank you for, for putting me on. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf. Lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. I did not mention this in the interview, as I can tell Charles is a humble man. The Senate voted 92 to zero. You're there right. 92 to zero to confirm him as the IRS commissioner. And I'd call that a vote of confidence. And they got it right. So did Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin. I love this book. And this would have been a great management book uh, in college. It's not boring at all. On page 68, I don't think it's in Kindle. You can't get it on the Kindle, but in the physical copy, page 68, Charles reduced complexity uh, with a simple mission statement supported by five guiding principles and seven goals. The mission statement and the guiding principles and the seven goals were supported by five pillars. Pillar number one was revamped business practices. A lot, not a few, a lot. Number two was only four operating divisions, and that was a big deal. Pillar number three was management roles with clear responsibility. The fourth pillar, balance measurement of performance, which we hit on in the interview. And the last one was new technology. And the technology was a mess. In the book, I think maybe the term even rubber bands may have been used Uh, But he and his team, they didn't just meet many of the objectives. I would say almost all of them during this five-year term. And not only that, customer satisfaction levels grew as well. Again, great book, recommend it. Many unhappy returns. Charles Rosati, again, thank you very much for joining us on CFO Bookshelf. And I'm Mark Gandy. Until next time.